Good morning. How is everyone? To be honest with you, I wasn't sure what to expect uh, speaking on a Friday morning in Amsterdam. Uh, I'm guessing you're the crew that didn't go out last night because I see a few tired faces out there that didn't drag themselves in. But nonetheless, I want to thank each and every single one of you for being here. Um, I, I appreciate it greatly. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story about SendGrid's founders. SendGrid was started nine years ago by three guys that, uh, actually, those three gentlemen up there, uh, they wanted to find a better way to send email because they had set up a lot of email servers um, across a lot of companies. And what they discovered was email's really hard to scale. Not only was it a pain in the ass to set up, actually making it work across a great, massive scale and uh, customer base was incredibly difficult. So they set about to create the first cloud email API platform, and today they've scaled that platform to process over 1.5 billion emails on behalf of 69,000 customers on a daily basis and some very iconic brands that are in your inbox every day. But to truly understand the difficulties around email and why it's so pervasive, we have to go back in time a little bit, so I'm going to give you a little history lesson on email. The first email was sent in 1971 by Ray Tomlinson. It was back then called ARPANET. Um, in 1978, this handsome devil up here, Gary Thurk, sent the first piece of spam. You can actually Google it and read it. He did something really novel. He didn't want to type 490-some-odd emails to announce a new DEC Alpha mainframe, so he sent one email to 490 people and probably was the first person to break the internet. Um, he holds this up jokingly, but nonetheless, he gave birth to spam. Webmail started in 1993, and that was truly the inflection point because at that point, email became beautiful and really accessible to a lot of people. You were no longer using email clients like Pine, Gopher, and Mud to read email. You actually saw pictures, and now we see nothing but pictures, so maybe it wasn't such a good thing. Today, there's about 270 billion commercial and personal emails delivered on a daily basis, and on average, people have, you know, two accounts or so, 1.75, I don't know how that works. But nonetheless, the average user has about two accounts. Who has more than two? Three? Four? Six? Ten? I stopped counting after ten. Anyway, nonetheless, you see what I mean. People actually segment their daily lives based on email and the kind of uh, accounts that it gets delivered to. I have an ancient Hotmail account that receives uh, all of my commerce. The rest of the accounts are for personal things and other emails. Um, so it's actually really heartening to see this. And what we determined is, like, why is email so pervasive? Why is half of all of this email, and this doesn't account for all the really nefarious spam that gets stopped at the gateway by ISPs, why is it so pervasive? Well, according to the DMA, email generates an ROI of $38 for every dollar of investment. Well, that's pretty huge. I mean, it's bigger than any of the channels beneath it. Now, nonetheless, despite all of this great ROI, uh, we still see articles about how email is going to die. 2020, the death of email. We're going to put it in the ground. Slack killed email. Workplace by Facebook killed email, right? Well, we want to answer that question. So we did a survey last uh, summer, a pretty exhaustive piece of research, to determine how different generations actually engage with email. And we looked at Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen Xers right here um, to figure out how different groups were using email. And what we discovered was that, by and large, across all three generations, everybody liked email for commercial messages. They want to engage with brands via email. But the thing that really kind of like surprised us and said, OK, we're on the right path is because Gen Z 
assumed they would use more email. They looked at it as a kind of rite of passage. You get to college, you get an email address, you have to apply for a job, you use an email address. You're not going to use Facebook to apply for a job. So we're pretty sure that email is going to be around for at least another 40 years or until we start communicating telepathically. Now, today is a very special day. Here it comes. GDPR comes into force today. Um, the world is essentially changing, and I don't know about you, but I have an entire folder of terms of uh, service updates and privacy notice updates that I've been collecting, and I probably received 10 yesterday. I, it's it's kind of nuts. But today is the day. I had to mention it. After this, please call your legal counsel and DPOs if you haven't already. So with that, let's talk about five ways that email wins in the inbox and how you can ensure that your email program sustains and grows your audience. Um, we're going to start with design. So email is truly cross-platform. And more importantly, there are a lot of very uh, nuanced readers and clients that you send email to. Now, it's an open platform. This is a blessing and a curse. The curse is that as marketers, it's really hard to deliver a unified brand experience across all of these platforms. So you have to think mobile first, right? You have to design for a four-inch screen and scale up from there. Whoops. There we go. There we go. All right, so you have to design for a mobile screen and scale up from there. Uh, we know that 55% of all emails are open on mobile devices, so you have to get the responsive design portion right first. And if you scale up from the smallest screen, you're going to have a great experience across all of the various readers that people use to read email. Email also lends itself to A-B testing. Uh, Airbnb here is testing essentially location versus actual lodging. Everything in an email can be tested, from images to placements to content to subject lines to even the from address. And what we say in email is that you have to test everything. I mean, literally, test, 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 and test again. And if that's not enough, test some more. Now, for those of you that are wondering, is email going to evolve? Well, yes, it actually is evolving. This is a really cool micro out built into an inbox by Jack Threads. It offered people a way to add a limited number of items and transact straight from the inbox. This decreased barriers to, uh, to conversion because it simply made it so that you didn't have to go out to the app or on a mobile landing site in order to do this. And those of you that might have heard about the announcement from Google, AMP for emails coming, it's going to add even more layers of creativity and interactivity to email. So email is evolving, and the massive effort by designers and companies like Google to make it more interactive is really heartening. All right, let's talk a little bit about content. We analyzed over 2 billion uh, unique addresses and deliveries that happened during the holiday shopping season. And what we determined was that four words yielded more engagement than the most common subject lines of seven words. Again, how do we know this? We know that it has to be tested, and we have to look at it to figure out what is going on over there. Buzzwords, who here is tired of seeing act now immediately? Yeah, I, I'm pretty burnt out on it too. I generally don't click on that. That yields a pretty speedy deletion. But nonetheless, it is how we motivate people. But you need to test these things. Hashtags we determined perform really poor, poorly. Engagement rates across hashtags were terrible. But nonetheless, if you know you have a segment of the audience that literally speaks Twitter, go ahead, hashtag, your, hashtag away. Um, the pre-header is one of, the, one of those things that isn't used very much and not very effectively. If your subject line is kind of your calling card, then the pre-header can be the extension of that calling card and the ability to brand that message further. How many people have seen emails where there's this ugly link right below the subject line, right? 
Someone's not using that preheader. It's prime real estate. Think about ways that you can actually put the call to action in the preheader as opposed to the ubiquitous click here to view on a mobile web page, right? Our phones work pretty well. I'm going to guess that most of us aren't clicking that link. So take advantage of it. Now, the thing about mobile that is really great is that it's forced us to think very much about what we're trying to achieve.、Um, back in the day, we used to deliver entire web pages to the inbox, but today it's all about a clear, concise call to action. Think about one offer, two offers max. Don't go crazy with it, okay? Average attention spans are equivalent to that of an insect. Buzzing around. How many emails do you delete when you glance at them for no less than one to two seconds? Your users are doing the same thing. So focus and limit what you want to do and be clear about what you're trying to accomplish. So, context, oops, there we go. I am not clicking today. So, context, relevancy.、Uh, there was a previous speaker here that talked about collecting all of these user behaviors and all of that data. That is absolutely true for email. In this example, Bands in Town is sending an email that actually locates place and time and previous actions. This is how we breed engagement through email. We create relevancy in trying to tie the real world to this digital experience. eBay, same thing. Every email you get from eBay is based on things you've looked at or correlated to things that you've looked at and engaged with. And eBay does something really cool. They've actually developed a proprietary technology that updates the content in the emails at the time of open. I mean, they have a really unique problem they have no catalog, they have no stock. That record you were trying to bid on, here today, gone tomorrow. So if you opened an email where everything was expired and non existent, that would be a really sad panda moment. So, nonetheless, they've developed this cool technology that allows them to make sure that every digital experience is evergreen. And there are some,、uh, some third party technologies that allow you to do that as well. All right. We are living in a global market, and email is accessible by nearly 4 billion people around the world. So, we have to start thinking about the nuances of delivering to, thing, to places outside of Gmail. And even if you're delivering to Gmail, you're going to be subject to some of the Difficulties and privacy regulations that、uh, exist around the world. So, one of the things that we need to consider are kind of、uh, how people interact with email. And if you're sending email to China, for instance, it's considered a best practice not to deliver email outside of Chinese business hours because the vast majority of email、um, accessed in China is accessed on a mobile phone. So, you're literally waking people up. And ISPs respond negatively when they see large amounts of email. Coming at their front doors in the middle of the night. Take into account where someone is and the kinds of privacy laws that govern how you collect addresses, how you store them, process them, transfer them, and their laws. This is a consent continuum. And this demonstrates how different consent is around the world. And because at the heart of GDPR is consent, and here I'll throw out the legalese consent under GDPR is freely given, specific, informed, and unambiguous. You understand all of the nuances that exist in trying to get consent in a meaningful way. This is the only way to grow a healthy list is to get consent and comply with the privacy regulations in a given geography. ISPs around the world are not the same. Gmail will accept mail very quickly, but all of their filtering is very, very individualized. Yahoo likes to slow things down. They like to let it trickle in until they see user response, then they'll open the gateways. Orange, on the other hand, greatly limits connections. So, understanding where your audience is and segmenting and optimizing for that domain specific delivery is absolutely crucial in order to succeed. Now, I'm going to spend the majority of the time on deliverability because guess what? If the email doesn't arrive, 
there is absolutely zero engagement and all that beautiful design work that you did is absolutely for naught. We know from research from companies like 250OK and ReturnPath that almost 20% of email goes missing. It either lands in the spam folder or, or basically gets blocked at the gateway. So think about it. A list of a million people, 200,000, never saw that email. That's money on the table. So we have to find ways to optimize deliverability on a massive scale. But unfortunately, deliverability is incredibly complex. And there are both technical and human factors involved in achieving good deliverability. Things like setting up IPs and your email authentication that will protect not only your brand, but your user's inbox require a good deal of know-how and skill. This is where I would say, if you don't know what these things are, talk to your email service provider or get one, because they are important to your success. Not only do they help in terms of brand protection and fraud mitigation, these are the things that are going to ensure that you have um, a data point in your overall IP reputation that will help your delivery. So reputation is a term that gets bandied about in reference to deliverability quite often. And what it basically is, it's like a fuzzy construct, right? Reputation is a nebulous thing we use to refer to our ability, uh, the reputation of our IP to deliver a given volume of email to a domain. And it's basically a summation of all the email that gets blocked, how it lands in the spam folder, how much of it gets opened, et cetera. We use reputation, but here's the thing. Rep your reputation at every ISP is unique because they're basically closed boxes, and they don't like to tell you where the mines are in the minefield. So what are the basics of reputation management? Well, you have to ask permission. Remember when I said consent is key? Consent is key because if you're going to seek consent, you're going to ask permission to use someone's email address. How many of you have preference centers? Yeah, a few. More preference centers, because this is a way for you to get people to tell you how often they want to receive email. I don't want three emails a day. I may want one email a week. And guess what? If you send me three emails a day, I'm going to mark you as spam. That's what a preference center does. It solves a lot of those problems because it becomes another source of truth, another signal to us as marketers to figure out what people want and how they want to be messaged to. Now, if you're going to take a picture, take a picture of the next slide. We had a conversation with Gmail on stage, and this is what their, um, these are the kinds of signals that they basically say determine reputation or whether a mail will deliver. Now, the things in blue, these are signals that we can see. We can track whether an email has been opened, and we also know when someone's marked it as spam. However, what about reply to addresses? Who here uses a do not reply to address? Yeah, you've seen a lot of emails say do not reply to. It makes sense because guess what? If you encourage people to reply to that address, you should reply to the reply. Otherwise, you're creating a very negative brand impression. However, if you were to change those do not reply to addresses to reply to addresses, you breed engagement. And that actually looks really good from the Gmail standpoint. So small hack to improve your reputation at Gmail. Placing things in special folders is another way that Gmail knows that someone is engaged with that message. So creating a construct, your own version of this, on the signals that you can see outside of the inbox is really crucial to establishing baselines of your own deliverability and resolving problems. Now, list growth should always be organic. Never, ever, 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 ever buy a list. Don't do it. Kittens die when you buy lists, and that's a terrible thing. Um, buying lists, look. Every, every major blacklist provider out there, from Spamhouse to Serbal, know exactly when you launch a list. Because they've been recycled so many times, you will hit a pattern of spam traps, and they're like, oh, this person is doing terrible things. Let me block them for time immemorial. Because that will happen, and it does happen on a regular basis. Don't buy lists. 
and consider cutting off your oldest and lowest performing segments. So one of the things the postmaster at Gmail said to us was, hey, every marketer in the world has a concept of ramping up emails when you have a new IP or a new domain. We start small, we're like, we're going to creep in the door. We're just going to go real quietly. They're not going to see me, right? And then we're going to go big. Cool, great, that works, it's good. But we don't have a concept of how to tone down that frequency. Because when people stop engaging with messages, when they like swipe left or swipe right to delete them over and over again, that's actually a disengagement signal for Gmail. So um, figure out a way to either limit the amount of email you're delivering to the oldest, least responsive portions of your list, or cut them off completely. Because they're dead weight and they're actually dragging down the rest of your mail program. Now, the great thing about email is that it's really, really instrumented. You have the ability to measure everything, and it is an incredibly iterative process. Every campaign will enable better insight and better targeting for the next campaign. So set baselines, track against what you've done in the past, and set realistic KPIs for the next iterative cycle. And with that, I'll just say this. Send beautifully designed email to people who really want to receive it, and you'll be just fine. Thanks for your time.